0: Welcome to NASA Talks. I'm Karen Grahalis, Manager of Communications and Investor Outreach for NASA. Today we present the premier episode of NASA's new webcast series, NASA Senior Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee presents. This webcast series was developed by NASA's Senior Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee to provide an inclusive platform for learning from the best and brightest minds who will discuss issues that matter most to those dealing with at-risk investors. The webcast episode you're about to hear featured the theme, Cognition, Problems, and Solutions, and addressed new ways to better understand the brain and cognition. The presenters in this recording discussed how environment, age, gender, and other factors can impact an investor's ability to make sound financial decisions and the steps to be taken to prevent financial exploitation. Now please join us for the webcast recording. Hello and welcome.
1: My name is Kristen Standifer, and I am the chair of the North American Securities Administrators Association's Senior Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee. I'm also a supervisor for the Washington State Securities Division. I am very pleased that you have joined us today. I'd like to welcome you to our special webcast, which is titled NASA's Senior Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee Presents, cognition, problems, and solutions. This webcast is one of many exciting projects that the committee is working on. I wish to thank the following committee members for their outstanding work in developing the webcast, specifically Rich Such, Deborah Gillis, and Chris Potty. Before we get started, I need to let you know that this meeting is being recorded. I also need to run through a few housekeeping items. First, please note that the opinions expressed by the panelists and speakers are are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of NASA or their organizations or agencies unless specifically so stated. Next, if your state or province allows you to self-file for continuing education credits, we have provided you the documentation to do so. At some point during the webcast, a verification code will be placed on the screen. It's important that you write this verification code down. It will only be shown once, and you'll need to enter it into the appropriate spot at NASA Continuing Education to receive your certificate of attendance. You will find all the CE information that you need in the Continuing Education tab in NASA Learning. (laughs) And last, for those of you who are attending this live broadcast, note that we have disabled both the chat and Q&A features. If you have any technical issues or need additional information, please contact NASA staff at register at nasa.org, and they'll be happy to assist you. Again, that email address is register at nasa.org. It is now my, my pleasure to introduce NASA president, and Maryland Securities Commissioner Melanie Center Lubin to develop or sorry to deliver our welcoming remarks. Welcome to our program President Lubin and thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you Kristen. I very much appreciate the good work you and your committee have done to bring this important webcast to reality. I also would like to give special thanks to Committee Vice Chair Richard Such of New Jersey and Committee members Deb Gillis of New Brunswick and Chris Patti of Nova Scotia for their great work in developing this webcast. Most importantly, thanks to all of you who are joining us today. At NASA, our members' priority is protecting investors. Today's discussion continues our years-long effort to focus on the financial exploitation of older Americans. Why the emphasis on this group of investors? The The answers lie in both the impact on the individual investor and the scope of the problem. The data on financial losses to this population reveals that direct investor losses are well into the billions of dollars annually. That's billions every year. And with the baby boomer generation at or approaching retirement and living longer than generations before them, forecasts are that these numbers will stock will skyrocket in the coming years. As large as these losses are, it is well documented that only a fraction of elder or vulnerable financial exploitation is reported. Behind these numbers are our family members, our friends, our clients, and our neighbors. It's when we view this issue through that lens that we come to really understand the especially devastating impact of financial exploitation of older Americans. NASA and our members are proud to help lead in the efforts to fight against senior financial exploitation. For example, NASA's 2016 Model Act inspired dozens of jurisdictions to adopt report and hold laws that gave the financial services industry a tool to slow or stop financial harm directed toward elderly populations. Through NASA's Senior Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee, as well as the NASA Investor Education Section Committee's Senior Outreach Project Group, we are constantly evaluating new ideas and approaches to create useful solutions to be implemented by regulators, by the industry, and by investors and their families. Through the Senior Committee's Advisory Council, we have the benefit of more than 20 experts in this field representing federal and state agencies, SROs, academia, and others. We are happy that two of our Advisory Council members are presenting to you today. We know that the effort here transcends any one agency or organization's reach or ability. In other words, we know that it takes a village. This webinar is a prime example of NASA's collaborative work to raise awareness and better equip ourselves in the fight against financial exploitation. It's now my pleasure to introduce the Vice Chair of NASA's Senior Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee and our program host, Richard Such from the New Jersey Bureau of Securities. Welcome, Rich, and thank you and the committee, as well as the Investor Education Senior Outreach Project Group. And our NASA staff for the good work done in putting this program together. Now to you, Rich.
3: Melanie, thanks so much. Uh, it's great to have you here to help us get the plane off the ground here on our launch broadcast. Uh, it, and uh, couldn't be more excited about it. And Kristen, thanks to you as well. Um, you know, obvi- obviously, uh, the enormity of what we face when we deal with seniors, elder vulnerable exploitation is something that we will talk about and everybody knows that there are problems but part of what we want to do here today is not just talk about problems but solutions and that's what we intend to do Uh, so to get us going right down to business we have a lot of program content packed into the 60 minutes allotted here Uh, i'd like to introduce our first guest both from the finra investor education foundation or finra foundation as it's known Jerry Walsh and Olivia Valdez. So Jerry, let's let's get started uh, with you. Um, tell us how uh, you found your path uh, to be overseeing uh, FinRA Foundation's tremendous work in investor education.
4: Well, thank you so much for having me, Rich, and and thanks to everyone who organized this event. It's an honor to be here. Um, I could talk all day about my path, but I'll keep it short. Uh, I basically took a detour off the beaten path for lawyers. Um, Quite a while ago, almost 25 years ago, maybe even a little bit more than that. um, I was uh, the daughter of Irish immigrants, uh, working class family, blue collar family. My sister and I were the first in our family to go to college. Um, So I learned a lot of tough lessons about managing money and didn't always do the right things along the way. And so, um, you know, having paid off all my law school loans, I started working at the Securities and Exchange Commission, got interested in investor education after a stint doing enforcement work, and I never looked back. I thought it was such a wonderful field, so rich. Um, I joined what was then NASD in 2006, and here I am.
3: It so suits you. I can see the enthusiasm as we've been doing the run-up to the show. Uh, By the way, Uh, You're you're Maryland Virginia area right?
4: Correct. Yeah, I'm I'm in Arlington.
3: I I thought of you this morning because the Washington football team now has a new name. You've got the Commanders now, which I thought was a tremendous solution. Uh, for what was previously kind of a bland sounding name.
4: I'm the wrong person to ask about pretty much anything sport related unless it's related to running. And even then I'm not so sure I'm the right person, but uh, it has caused quite a tizzy and I think a little bit of relief.
3: Good, good. And the running we know because you're a
4: marathoner. I approach life as a marathon, not a sprint.
3: Exactly, well, many things are. Let's move over to Olivia. Olivia, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about your path. I know you thought you were gonna be a doctor. I know your mom's a doctor, uh, but you took a turn uh, away from that. How how did that go?
5: Yeah, and so thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be on this program. Um, And yeah, just like you said, Rich, I envisioned being a doctor for basically my whole life until I got to my last year of college. And I realized that I wasn't really that interested in the clinical side of um, you know medicine and science, but more on that research side. And so I joined a research lab, which coincidentally was on cognitive aging, and that really you know spun the wheels there. And fast forward to now, I um, I had gotten my PhD in experimental psychology um, with a specialization in social development, and then I graduated mid-pandemic, and so. Like everyone who graduated mid-pandemic knows, it was kind of scary being a new graduate. And so I cast a pretty wide net and I never really expected to work at FINRA or the foundation, but I just really knew that I wanted to do something that had policy implications that they could really make a difference in people's lives. So it was just thrilling to be um, in the foundation and the work that we're doing here is something that I'm really proud of. <laughs>
3: Yeah. And unlike most of us on the call, as I recall it, you didn't even know what FINRA was, right?
5: I didn't. I did not know what FINRA was. I Googled it and I learned quite a bit and have been learning since.
3: Terrific. So, Jerry, why, why don't you get us off the ground here and talk a little bit about the FINRA Foundation and what it does?
6: Happy to do so. So the
4: FINRA Foundation is a separate independent uh, organization, although it's it's staffed fully um, with staff from FINRA, so people like Olivia and myself. And our whole mission is to empower uh, financial consumers with the tools and resources they need for financial success throughout their lives. And we do that through a combination of educational outreach and research. Research is a really important component of what we do. We have a number of strategic strategic goals, investor protection, building capacity at the grassroots level for financial capability building, and then really benchmarking and communicating research that covers important issues like you know, fraud susceptibility, what works in financial education, you know, capability generally, financial knowledge um, and capability, um, and then more recently, aging and cognition.
3: And how, how do you decide what to focus on in any given year for your research and other efforts?
4: We're guided by the, the strategic plan that we have that has those high level concepts that I just talked about. Um, but a lot of the work comes through ideation. We engage in creative exercises with our our partners, both internal and external. Um, so issues that are important to the securities industry and to securities regulators, like issues related to aging and cognition, um, fraud prevention, fraud susceptibility. All those topics are things that we take a deep look at um, and then we we have a group of external academic stakeholders that we regularly consult with to see what they're seeing and see what's on their mind we want to take um you know, we wanna move out of the the laboratory setting, um, the experimental setting, and really try to understand where investors are, what their attitudes are, what their knowledge is, what their behaviors look like, and then what some of the influences are on those behaviors and important to this discussion today is, um, you know, the concept of cognition and memory and how people make decisions.
3: That naturally leads me to the Rush University Medical Center and its memory and aging project, uh, commonly known as MAP. Tell us about the Rush Foundation and the data that they have, which I found to be fascinating. Okay.
4: The work that Rush is doing is really impressive, and we've been we've been collaborating uh, with them for three or more years at this point through our Investor Protection campaign. Um, they have a longitudinal study of um, community dwelling adults, um, people who are in uh, retirement communities in the Chicago area, and um, uh, just they, just
3: for just for the uninitiated, longitudinal study is a what?
4: Uh, it means that um, they've been looking at the same people over a long period of time. So a lot of survey data is just a snapshot in time of you know, a collection of a thousand or a hundred thousand people. Um, you ask questions of them and they give you an answer. These are people who have agreed to participate in a long-term study and it focuses on cognition, um, co- cognitive impairment and dementia. These are people who have agreed to donate their brains to science. So in addition to a variety of questions that the researchers have asked them over time, they've also observed behaviors, including changes in their physical manner and in their cognitive abilities. Um, But then they'll have all that data uh, when you know, um, the person dies, they'll be able to examine their brain to see whether there were physical um, elements, including, you know, not only the presence of the amyloid plaques that you hear about so much in connection with Alzheimer's disease, but other types of um, neuro implications. And I'm starting to get into the realm where Olivia knows more about the details of um, what Rush
3: is doing. Okay, so that naturally moves us over to, uh our PhD, Olivia. By the way, thanks for your work on the Advisory Council, Jerry.
4: Oh, it's a pleasure. It's an honor to serve with you all.
3: Uh, um, So Olivia, tell us how uh, you marry up the strategic plan that FINRA puts together, uh, either with RUSH or, or other data to do the research that you do.
5: So what is really great about a relationship like Rush and FINRA and the FINRA Foundation is that the FINRA Foundation brings in our expertise in terms of what's going on in the world, what is important to investors. And then on the Rush side, as with many of our other um, academic partners, they bring in that research expertise. So they bring a wealth of information and um, knowledge on these uh, neuropsychological fronts. And as Derry mentioned, this data set, um, the Memory and Aging Project is so robust and diverse. And unlike a lot of other big data sets, we're actually following the same people over time. So it's just giving us a very great, you know research project to work from
3: so so why study decision making in older adults
5: so we see that during older age people have to make very impactful decisions about you know things like healthcare and financial uh, different decisions medical plans retirement funds estate planning a number of key decisions that have very critical implications and they don't have the same amount of time that their younger counterparts have if they uh, lose those funds for instance or they make the wrong medical decisions and so for this age group it's super important to make uh, sound financial and healthcare decisions which in the united states are really very intertwined um and so at the same time that we know that they're making these important decisions, we do know that cognition declines over time. So right around age 50 or so, we see a slow but steady decline in cognition. And those subtle changes are very really important to decision making. So, you know, we pair the fact that they're making important decisions, that those decisions have critical implications and the fact that their cognition is slowly declining. It's very important to see what we can do to foster sound decision making. And that's really the um, nature of these studies. What can we do to uh, protect older adults against poor decision making?
3: And, and what uh, what is tied to uh, increased or decreased vulnerability uh, in making decisions that you've that you've researched?
5: So there's really a lot of different factors that impact decision-making throughout life, really. But we do see that cognition is a very important and one that's very front of mind for a lot of researchers and policymakers alike. But even in addition to cognitive issues, we see other factors, things like um, financial and health literacy. So how much you know about finances, financial resources, even personality uh, traits like impulsivity, um, negative affect. So this idea of emotional distress, all of those things are important factors to um, decision making. In our study, we've uh, focused on things that both by themselves are important factors to decision-making and that together with cognition, make an impact on decision-making. And so... Um,
3: Jerry, why don't don't you walk Olivia through the loneliness study? uh, And and while I'm thinking of it, can you talk a little bit about the FINRA issue briefs that you put together so academic studies can be understood by normal mortals? (laughs)
5: Absolutely. Well,
4: one of the things that we try hard to do through the foundation is to translate some of the more you know, academic clinical um, uh, jargon into everyday language um, so that policymakers, um, regulators, you know, like uh, our friends at NASA and, and FINRA and the Securities and Exchange Commission and others can digest and actually use. And so some of the things that we've studied are the impact of isolation, um, which is something that you might not necessarily think of as having a strong impact on your ability to make decision-making, to to make decisions and and your susceptibility um, to fraud. So, uh, Olivia, I think you were about to say that that, that's one of the areas that we've taken a look at, not only with Rush, but with other researchers um, to better understand the impact of
3: isolation. Can you you real just quickly tell the audience where they can find The issue briefs, please.
4: They're all available on FINRAfoundation.org. That's FINRA, F-I-N-R-A, foundation.org.
3: Okay, good. So if you could just walk Olivia through this first study that we want to present here today, that'd be great, Jerry. Thank you.
4: Sure, Olivia, take it away.
3: That so was <laughs>
4: she is on.
6: I know
5: our we're pilot. pressed for time. I want to make sure we get yeah, to all the
3: points. We, we, ha- we have time, but go ahead, Olivia.
5: So, essentially, what we found is that loneliness is very important to decision making when in people with a low cognition. So, if we you already have a, a lower cognition, if we add on top of that loneliness, then we see an association with poor decision making. And so
6: Go ahead.
5: Sorry. And so, the reason for that, or one of the possible explanations, is that we know that when people have high levels of loneliness, they tend to not use their other cognitive resources. So, for instance, things like relying on financial literacy or relying on outside information, they have more difficulty doing that transfer. So when you pair that with low cognition, it tends to be associated with uh, lower decision-making. Another thing that's possible is the fact that high levels of loneliness are associated with what we call intuitive thinking which is essentially where you're thinking, you, it's fast thinking. You don't really um, process it slowly and analytically. We call that the lizard brain. Um, and when you don't have those um, high cognitive uh, capabilities, that can lead to making decisions that may be suboptimal.
4: And the, the whole concept of you know thinking fast and slow is something that um daniel kahneman and uh amor tversky have explored for years and so this builds on that research um olivia there was a, a research brief uh, a very Beautifully plain language research brief that came out today on meta memory. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, what it is, and why it matters?
5: Yeah, so another important factor to decision making appears to be this concept of meta memory. And what meta memory essentially boils down to is our own awareness of our memory skills. So having an accurate gauge of what we know seems to be important to our financial decision making. And we see that individuals who are a little bit far off, so they may overestimate their memory skills or on the opposite spectrum, underestimate their memory skills tend to make poor financial decisions.
3: When we reach I remember talking to you when we reach conclusions, I'm gonna use the word conclusions in quotes, you're not making direct causation findings, you're you're finding corollaries, right? And why is it important to understand the difference between those two things? Because most people want answers, right? And, and it's hey. not so easy to provide clear answers when you're talking about studies of the brain.
5: We definitely all want clear and concise answers, but unfortunately with research, we can't really say causality because we're not doing an experiment. So there are other factors that we may not be considering. And so we can look at associations or correlations, but to draw from that causality is something that we, we can't do.
3: And, go ahead, Jerry.
5: I was just going to ask, you know, one of the things that so many of us focus on uh,
4: is financial literacy and bolstering financial knowledge. So, what is the interplay of financial literacy with meta memory and decision making?
5: So, that's actually a really interesting um, factor that we found in this study because even though we saw, you know, a low level of meta memory, so having inaccurate gauges of your memory skills can lead to or is associated with poor decision-making, financial literacy is actually a protective factor against poor decision-making. Even more so, so financial literacy can help, According to this research, may be able to help more than poor meta memory can hinder. So, financial literacy seems to be an extremely important uh, factor to decision making, and not just in this study, but we've seen it across the board in many other research projects.
6: How, how oh, go go ahead. ahead, I
3: want want to ask you a question because, as you know, I, I just watched your testimony before the Senate. Committee on Aging, and one of the things you talked about, and this surprised me because I thought it was otherwise, is millennials have a lower level of financial literacy than you might expect.
6: That, that is,
4: that's what we've been measuring through the National Financial Capability Study ever since we first did the uh, survey in 2009. So the National Financial Capability Study, or NFCS as we call it for short, is a triennial every three year uh, survey of about 27,000 individuals, uh, US adults. And uh, with a, a sample size that large, we are able to slice and dice by various demographics, age, gender, race and ethnicity, marital status, um, educational attainment, income, a whole host of other demographic factors. And what we've seen is that financial literacy has been declining, but a lot of that decline is driven by younger people. And comfortingly, um, financial knowledge appears to be holding steady uh, for people who are in older demographics. So, you know, the 55 year old age group, for example. We do see some declines though, when people um, get beyond 65. Um, But part of what we think might be driving the decline is that honestly, the world has changed. Um, The financial uh, mechanisms that people are using, the way way they engage in banking and investing has changed dramatically with the advent of um, honestly, we are and the phone yeah right right yeah. and and, yeah. and you know you 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 see less information there's more information out there and there's often kind of a need to know right if, if you if you need a quick answer or you need to make a quick calculation you can always look it up on your phone there's also you know while while you don't have to um, be able to do um, complex math calculations to reach the answers you really need to to understand the concepts, um, you know there there is some suggestion of the role of numeracy as it relates to financial knowledge, and so we're exploring all those different avenues. That's some of the other research that the foundation
3: is doing. So uh, um, help help me out here. Numeracy.
4: Numeracy is your your facility with numbers. Um, so how, how facile you are with math, um, your ability to do calculations it's it's much broader than that but that's the shorthand um, for now. But you know one of the things that's really important and one of the things that I emphasized in my Senate testimony and that I would emphasize with everyone who's listening to this webinar uh, today is that financial education does matter and especially the higher the quantity, 10 or more hours Um, And the higher the quality, uh, the more likely that people who have been exposed to that level of financial education are to be engaging in positive financial behaviors, like planning for retirement, like thinking about their financial future, feeling like they're not stressed. And this is true not only through the National Financial Capability Study, but researchers across the globe are realizing that financial education has impacts not only on knowledge which is what financial literacy you know with five quick questions measures but also behaviors which suggest financial wellness. And so it's important to invest in financial education and it's separately important to have critical, rigorous, independent reviews of what actually works and impacts downstream behaviors when it comes to financial education.
3: All right, let's use the remainder of our time to talk about uh, preventions and interventions, solutions to help with the problems you know to exist as the brain ages. I throw that to either of you. Olivia?
5: So, one really important thing, as Jerry just mentioned, is this idea of expanding our educational resources. We see that a lot of different organizations, national organizations have um, made a lot of educational resources available and that's great. We need to keep that going, make sure that they're accessible to everyone. A lot of older adults don't have the possibility to go out. So making these available in their own homes, making those in virtual spaces are super important. Um, So that's one thing that I think we should definitely keep in mind.
4: And another thing that we can keep in mind and that that complements this is, you know, thinking about what the policies and regulations are that sort of provide some structure um, to support uh, what people are learning and what people are doing. And that sort of step in as well uh, in in cases where financial education might not be coming into play. And so one example of that, um, you know, uh, uh, Melanie and Kristen talked about it at the top of the hour is the growth great work that state securities regulators have been doing, state legislatures have been passing report and hold laws, um, FINRA has uh, rule 2165 and 4512 um, related to senior financial exploitation and establishing a trusted contact. These rules have been in effect for a while now, but they allow for the pause on disbursement. Um, brokers can pause disbursements when they're afraid. Uh, when they suspect that there's been some kind of financial exploitation happening um, in the account and it gives them time to engage with, you know, APS, Adult Protective Services, or state regulators, other authorities, um, and to do an investigation before dispersing the funds. One of the things that we know to be true, and as state regulators, I know you all know as well, uh, once the money leaves the account, uh, it's very difficult sometimes to get it back especially if there is fraud and often it's not an investing scam that's causing the money to leave the account it's something like a romance scam right um and so those are the things that we want to try to um to leverage and one other structural intervention uh when it comes to regulation is is really the senior safe act which i know that state securities regulators were um instrumental in in helping to shape um that's a federal law that allows uh, again for um you know a safe harbor for individuals that report wrongdoing um so that the the authorities can get involved and try to stop um, a crime from happening. I,
3: I think that's about as good a place as any to stop. I could talk to you guys all afternoon. Uh, thank you for for your prep, uh, running up to this, and for being so sparkling uh, in this first segment. Both of you, thank you.
4: Thank you so much, you. it was an honor.
3: Uh, now I'd like to introduce uh, Chris Potty, who's with the Nova Scotia Securities Commission. And Pamela Teaster, who is with the Virginia Tech Gerontology Center. Welcome, ladies. Rich. Pamela, good to see you. Chris, good oh. to see you too. Great Pamela, uh, Pamela, I I I know that uh you you started out uh in Bristol, Tennessee. That's where you were born. You told me that you made the main street in your town uh was the border of West Virginia and Tennessee. Tell us a little bit about. The path that brings you here today, please.
7: Oh, probably circuitous, like the other folks who were on the uh, just presented. Um, yeah, but it was Virginia. The people in Virginia would be upset to think that the Main Street ran up West Virginia and Tennessee. That oh, might be. <laughs> <laughs> I got
3: I mean, confused with Bristol, and uh, forgive me. Go ahead. That's
7: okay. That's okay. You can relax there in, in San Francisco where you look like you could be.
3: It's um, a better view than Newark, New Jersey on a rainy day. <laughs>
7: Indeed. Um, so so I was a high school English teacher and drama teacher. That's what I became right out of college. And um, I really began to, I needed to take my students to perform. And because of that, I took them to facilities, long-term care facilities and, and what was then assisted living, although we were just calling it that. And I realized that those older people needed a lot, they needed a lot more than I thought they were ever getting as I was watching them. So that sort of caused me to go in the direction of older people. And then um, I think I got interested in aging policy because I thought it gave me a wide berth of things to do. And I I think I probably always was interested in ethics, justice—you know, justice issues—and that's how I got interested in elder abuse and surrogate decision making.
3: Did, did you give your students uh, a pass on class today so they could watch, <laughs> yes. watch their, watch their rock star teacher speaking on the webinar?
7: <laughs> <laughs> They're probably on. I told okay. them they could yeah. even evaluate. <laughs> so.
3: and, and, and Chris, uh, let's turn to you. Welcome aboard. Uh, tell us. Uh, about how you started. I know you were born and raised in Nova Scotia. Uh, as you know, I looked up the landmass of Nova Scotia because I always thought of it as this teeny little province and discovered it's got a yes. landmass. Well, it, it, it is relative to the other provinces in Canada, but yep. it's uh, it's got three times the landmass of New Jersey, and it's still one of the baby provinces uh, in Canada. But tell us, tell us how, You come to us here today, Chris.
6: Well, it is. And I, uh, Dartmouth actually, uh, Rich, is known as the city of lakes. We have um, our landmass, as you know, because you looked it up, is about 57 square kilometers. Um, And we have approximately 22 lakes within those city boundaries. So it's not too, not never too far from the ocean and never too far from a lake.
3: And you've got those 20 foot tides up there.
6: Oh, the fundy tides. And that's like Deb with New Brunswick. I mean, we have some of the, I think we have the highest tides in the world.
5: Yeah.
6: Um, so anyway, I, yeah, I started my career in wealth management with a major Canadian chartered bank uh, while living in Alberta. I eventually moved to the regulatory side when I moved back to Nova Scotia and eventually went to work for the Nova Scotia Securities Commission. And uh, I oversee compliance registration and self-regulatory organizations. On um, both the wealth management side and the regulatory side, I was uh, exposed to the issues of older adult financial exploitation. And over those years, I developed very strong views, especially with respect to um, the issue of health and aging in older adults who have been exposed to financial exploitation. So when I decided to do my master's in adult education, it just seemed like the um, blend of uh, my work and my concerns and education just came together. So I did a focus on older adult learning and financial exploitation.
3: Awesome. Thanks for the help putting the show together. Why don't you get us going with our uh, special guest, Pamela, Chris.
6: Sure, yeah. Um, Thanks to everybody who's joining us today. Hi again, Pam. Um, When I started with the Seniors and Vulnerable Investor Committee, I was provided with a list of the advisory council members. And as I was going through that list and looking at who was on it and what their backgrounds were, I saw the name Pamela Teaster and I went, I know that woman. Well, I don't know her, but I know that name because I actually referenced to Pam's work in my research. So when we were developing this inaugural event, I reached out to Pam and she was kind enough to join us for this segment. So thank you for that Pam. And then we got to know each other a little bit by having video calls and corresponding and through our work. So that's been nice. Um, Pam, just uh, what I'd like to do to start with is um, you had, we came to know that you have a a quote that you like to use or that's close to your heart. And when you shared that with us, uh, it also resonated with myself and Rich. So I'm just going to share that. A master in the art of living draws no sharp distinction between her work and her play, her labor and her leisure, her mind and her body, her education and her recreation. She hardly knows which is which. She simply pursues her vision of excellence at whatever she does, leaving others to decide whether she is working or playing. To her, she is always doing both. That's attributed to LP Jacks. I was wondering, Pam, if you could just tell us what this quote Um, I I think it's about how you construct your life and and your your professional and your
7: personal life Um, and probably why I always get flop sweat when I have to introduce myself because I really don't know what I should say. And that's honestly the truth because probably I'm not sure whether I'm working or playing. So I think it's you know that one is not divorced from the other, and have we not learned that during COVID? um, That you know, did you ever think you'd truly be showing a picture off your deck in on a conference call where your dog's really on the side of you and the school bus is going to come to my right? Um, So, and the other thing is about how you approach your work. Um, I think we can uh, approach it very stressfully, and probably have earlier in my time of work, but truthfully. A lot of it is play, and it create. It just makes you more creative, I think, when you do the work you do. So, so sometimes work is actually play. I really, I really like probably everybody on this call. Very passionate about what I do, and hope someday that I leave the world a better place, both in the work I do and the family I raise, and the family, families I pick up along the way.
6: Yeah, Pam, thanks. That's a really great quote, and I think clearly speaks to your concern personally, academically, and professionally around older adult abuse. Yeah,
3: no doubt. So, uh, Chris, we'll, we'll, we'll pivot now to the work that uh, Pamela is actually doing.
6: Yeah, I, Pam, would you just uh, tell us about the work that you've been doing on older women and financial exploitation and what the major findings have been? Sure. Um, I, I've done a bunch of studies
7: of that. And when we were preparing for this call, I realized it was a long time ago that I started. Um, but, but they all are intertwined. Exploitation is generally not just exploitation. It's a lot of times exploitation plus um, Shelley Jackson also Virginia, um, had done some work on that and talked about different types of financial exploitation or what we will call PolyVic. Um, so early on, I had done some work. Um, this was, I was at the University of Kentucky at the time and I looked at intimate partner violence of rural aging women. Um, and, and during that particular work, um, I really had found out that it wasn't just IPV. They took their money, they hid their money, Um, That that was a controlling piece of how women got old, how women age and why they had to stay in abusive relationships. That was on a sort of interview that was face to face with people. And so that was one way that we learned about those things. Um, A little bit later and opportunistically, as many things happen, um, I and colleagues, uh, Dr. Karen Roberto, um, uh, Bob Blancato and uh, John Migliaccio, we we four, with graduate students, wonderful, particularly um, Susie Lawrence, who's now uh, in Michigan, we worked on a study called two studies of the MetLife Mature Market Institute that then existed on elder financial abuse. We did this representing the National Committee for the Prevention of Elder Abuse at that time. Um, We did two, we ran that play twice, actually. We did the first of those studies um, and then did a second one. So we actually did two of them. Rich, you you were surprised I was on it. Um, I think I'm probably on page six. Of course, I know those things. Uh, but um, <laughs> but uh, the reason that it, we did that was really because it was the Met Life study, and because you know we were representing, at least I was, uh, and Bob and I were, was a uh, national committee for the prevention of elder abuse, doing that work for you know
3: to so, represent them. Well, let me just jump in here and say, you know. Honestly, I I can't tell you how many times I've seen quoted the 2.9 billion dollar number. I didn't know that I now know somebody who's helped behind, you know, what that numerical calculation was. Um and 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 as you know, as you and as you told me, the 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 abuse is so underreported. So if the estimate is this around 3 billion in 2011, yeah. uh and you've got one in five to one in seven, I've seen some studies where they say 43 and 44 cases are not, uh, you know, recorded. It, it is a ginormous problem for the country. And that's just oh, the direct losses.
7: Absolutely. Um, and we, you know, we always knew that was gonna be an undercount. We always did. But we, as we sat around this table and I can tell you that Dr. Berno, I in particular were sweating this because most of us academics don't like to have to say anything spot on the money because, um, you know, this is terrifying, we always want to do more work, um, uh, to feel better about it. <laughs> and so, you know, we were, I was probably driving in my car when, when I first got brushed with, we're going to have to have a number. And I went, Oh no, we know. Um, so, so there, no number existed at that time. And we know research can make things, better research makes better numbers. But that was the first one that happened at the time. And it was, you know, gosh, it went in the congressional record, it changed law in four states right off the bat. It, it really had, and, and then other people improved on that by using different ways to calculate that number. But at the time there wasn't anything other than the way we did it. So- uh, So
3: let me, let me steer you back, Chris, go ahead. Uh, I just, wanted to talk about the size of the problem and she raised Pamela raised the MetLife study. I know we're on the findings of
7: the work. Right.
6: Yeah. I was uh, one of the things I was wondering about Pam is when we talk about um interacting influences with respect to financial exploitation when perpetrated against older women, right. what would some of those interacting influences be and what's the significance of that? Um
7: well, there's there's a number of them. One would be that even still, and, pro- and probably even more so 10 years ago, more women still outlived men. Um, that's a, sort of a demographic reality. And then pro- 10 years ago, probably less today, one of the partners, typically the women, didn't control the finances in the household. So if the male partner you know, died first, then, then the female partner was left with a dependency either to do something they never had really been doing or on somebody else, hence the surrogate problem. So, so you know, it goes back to what uh, I think Jerry and Olivia were saying earlier, that you need to know about your finances better, but that would be one thing. Then Olivia particularly talked about the cognitive decline that occurs for older adults, particularly in numeracy, which is really important um, with older adults, and that created an issue. Then one of your speakers, if not already, and my students were talking today about the positivity effect, meaning that women may tend to be more trusting. Older adults as a group may tend to be more trusting because they're biologically and neurologically wired to do so. So, you know, that that trust, that confluence of now having to make decisions where a person didn't have the background to do that, The fact that they live longer than men, these are sort of, you know, 40,000 foot up reasons that women could be more easily exploited. We won't even go unless you want to, to talk about, you know, um, race, culture, gender, all those things also come into play and can provide in many respects for financial exploitation, cumulative disadvantage.
3: Is it, I mean, it's probably worth mentioning at least on a high level, how some of those factors that were, you know, demographic factors you described can impact outcomes.
7: Well, so it, my student, we were just talking about this in class today. My students learned that how protect, how, what a perfective and promotive factor education is. So if a person doesn't have, is it, it doesn't have all that neurologic wiring in the education, they won't understand, be able to make complex sort of financial decisions. Right. And they would need help with that, but they're going to get the wrong help and then they can be exploited. And we, and we know that a, a, of that occurring. You know, um, another study I think we'll probably talk about, if we have time, will be the bank safe project that we did um, at ARP with Jillian Gunther. And there, you know, was the realization that the banking industry can be really, really, can really insert itself in trying to prevent some of the problems that occurred for older adults who get, who, who are told to go to a bank window and pull out money. Um, I remember I was taking my mother-in-law to get some money from her bank. And I was like, I am getting this for her. I'm not getting it for me. I just want you to know that I study this. I do not want you to think that. Because they've never <laughs> seen me at the window before. So in this little town. So, but I'm just saying those, you know, those sorts of things, um, you know, really impinge and affect how a person can be financially exploited.
6: Do we have time for another question in this area, Rich? Sure. I was just wondering, uh, Pam. Is there like what would be the benefits of a research focused specifically on older women and financial exploitation? I think you do what Rich said. You could get deeper and deeper into the reasons behind it and the
7: effects of it, right? And so, a colleague of mine at Virginia Tech. I want to give a shout out to her because I told her I would. Um, Kat Party and I are doing some work. We're interviewing older people in in a in a, a retirement community about their experiences with exploitation. And so not only would you would you be able to characterize the people who are being exploited, but you'd also know what's the aftermath, less of which I have known until we did this study and interviewed the 32. Um, and amazing in that they've been very hesitant to tell anybody because their families pounce on them and start telling them how demented they are. So I, I mean, those kinds of interactions, you know, there's the, there's the losses that we calculated, but I think some of the, you know, really some of the earlier research that you do, which is trying to understand the experiences of the individuals, um, help you understand why they don't get reported in the same ways, um, what the older people feel like when they make an error like that, and how they are treated by law enforcement or their families or their friends and how they
6: feel about it. Which is a big part of why they don't report Yes, Yes.
7: absolutely.
3: Yeah, that naturally leads us to advice, uh, Pamela, you would give to older women and their families. Uh, We were kind of having a chuckle last week when we were talking about it on the phone. I had this image of you uh, kind of explaining the way the world works to the people in Congress and to make sure that people didn't make emotional choices about yes <laughs> you know, so, but but so talk about talk about advice for older women and and, and their families
7: well I, I think i think rich is referring to some a presentation i did in washington oh gosh a couple of years ago when we were working on powers of attorney and and power of attorney exploitation which you've also been doing a bit of work on and it was to say in the early findings this is some work with jenny vincenti out in the University of Wyoming. You all can tell I never work alone. I don't bowl alone anymore. It's too stupid. <laughs> um, um, but but with the work with Jenny Vincenti, what we were finding, and colleagues, we were finding that you know people tended to choose their child. They felt the sorriest for to appoint them as power of attorney. So I mentioned those findings at a presentation I was doing. I go, watches people back up because I thought you don't know you shouldn't do that. If you pick if you pick a family member to be your surrogate, to make financial decisions, and they're the ones who never could handle money, they will not be rising to the occasion then either. So don't pick them, you know, don't pick somebody you feel sorry for, don't pick the, and you don't have to pick the oldest child just because you should pick the oldest child, because as a matter of fact, he or she may be the poorest choice that you might make, Um, would be good to, but it would be good to be more financially literate. I think the colleagues I Heard before me would say that it would be good to get a little more interested in your finances a little earlier than later um, to just have some understanding of that. Um, and then um, I think um, you know, t- figuring out who is the right person to trust, that's easier said than done but who, who is the right person to trust to help you with your financial decisions? I suspect it's like everything else we do. We hardly ever do bowl alone anymore, but you ought to pick out who your bowling partner should be.
6: Do you think, Pam... Uh, sorry, Rich. No, it's okay. Do you, do you think, Pam, that um, older adults should consider non-family members? Sure. Sometimes family members are the
7: worst. And, mm-hmm. so, you know, so, and sometimes... You know, for example, in trust relationships, um, you know, if you I don't know if you watch the Kaminsky method, um, but if you if you ever watch that show they you know, they pick the guy um, Alan Arkin, the Alan Arkin character, picked his best friend, and he got in the middle of a horrible family squabble. You know, so sometimes family members are bad, best friends are bad, and some more neutral party. Everybody can be mad at them, and they take a fee for that. So the, the
3: other thing, the other <laughs> thing you, the other thing you told us to tell people was when you make a designation, tell the other people oh, in the yeah. family, you made the designation. You don't <laughs> want it to be a surprise because it's just it can't end. It can't end well. It so let me, let me let me pivot because I, I I this has to get some air time the bank safe study uh aarp was involved with that you were involved with that I found the outcome to be absolutely fascinating because if if ever there were an application of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure that study seemed to show it so quickly uh wanted to tell the audience what the what you found and and what it means or what the study found, I should
7: say. Well, this was the brainchild of Jolene Gunther. Um, and I also did this work with uh, Tina Savla. Again, I just have to give shout outs to people because they are you know, doing a great deal of that work as well. Um, but here was the idea that Jolene had, that if we trained bank bank folks, people in the banking industry, they could spot and perhaps prevent people from becoming exploited. And the study, we did a control and comparison group with eight, 82 financial institutions um, to do that work. And when we did, they we just wanted to see that the money was saved in a very short amount of time. Over a million dollars was saved Um, and that, um, older people were safer, that, that the people who learned about how to protect them, 133% increase in knowledge, um, they, they were trained, um, they, they were able to report at a rate five, four times higher than the control group. So they were able to even report suspicions of it. It re, it really was pretty phenomenal. And, and it's something that might, you know, that, that even I probably am older and I would say, ah, oh, they won't like that. It's sort of a gamification approach to learning. So those the people who are learning it. Don't find that to be such a dog's dinner of being educated and trained after, after COVID and being in 2d boxes, nobody's going to put up with that anymore, but the yeah. was ahead of her time in that way. So they really, really had great outcomes of training. And then what you don't know, Rich and Chris, is we're actually gonna run that play again. Um, I'm gonna work with a woman named Laura Sands at Virginia Tech and also with Jolene again. This'll be, we're getting started on this and this will be doing some of the same work, but, but it will look at gift cards because they are a vehicle of financial exploitation. And there we will be working with people like uh, folks in, in uh, grocery stores and that sort of industry um, to try to prevent exploitation in that way, but that's uh, Jillian's next brain brain drop.
3: All right. So we ha- there. yeah we um, have to yeah we have to uh, pivot to our next segment. Uh, Chris and Pamela can't thank you enough. Do take a look at the AARP BankSafe study. Just Google it; you'll find it. Thank you very much. And last but certainly not least, I am happy to introduce the former chair of NASA's Senior Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee, Deb Gillis from New Brunswick, and Danika Sergison, who's coming to us from Ontario Securities Commission. Hi, Rich,
8: thanks. Hi, Rich.
3: So uh, give us the one minute, Deb, on uh, how you got here. I know your dad was a lawyer.
8: Uh, Yeah, so I'm from Newfoundland originally. Uh, Newfoundland, I'm sure many of you have heard the name before, it's uh, the province that is known for Come From Away, where all the planes landed uh, during 9-11. Uh, like Rich said, my dad was a, a lawyer, and so I decided you know law school would be a, a, a place that I'd like to go to. I'd like to learn uh, more about law like my dad did, but I didn't want to go home right away. And so I ended up working at a larger firm for uh, seven or eight years, uh, eight years doing litigation. Um, then I did go uh, and work with my dad for a little bit on, on a project he was working on and ended up back here at the Financial and Consumer Services Commission. And when I did, I actually uh, had the opportunity to lead an initiative to look at issues that affect older and vulnerable investors, which led me to this NASA committee in 2014 uh, when it was initially struck. Um, And and from that point, I got to meet a lot of the great speakers that were here today.
3: Thanks so much, Deb. And Danica, tell us quickly about your path and how you got to uh the kind of academic research research you're doing for Ontario.
9: Absolutely. Um, So my background, I started my bachelor's, I did a lot of social work courses, psychology, very interdisciplinary approach. Um, And so when I went to law school, I was really interested in the human impact of law, broader determinants of health and wealth, including how we can have that good life and retire and continue to maintain those states throughout all stages of life. So I was really interested in the role of policy and regulation improving a person's holistic life. And, you know, through a few trips through the financial services industry, I ended up at the OSC in the investor office. And you know, I really love my work.
3: You're based in Toronto? Yep,
9: yeah, born and raised. Yeah. We're at least 10 minutes outside Pickering, Ontario, which is probably not a place many people here have heard of, but.
3: Okay. So Deb, why don't you take us away with Danica and uh, the OSCs and its innovative research that they do?
8: Yeah, absolutely. So Danika, thank you for coming here uh, to be with us today. I'm so glad that you're here to talk about uh, the, the Ontario Securities Commission's report, protecting aging investors through behavioral insights. And really for me, I found it really fascinating the first time I saw this report that a regulator like the Ontario Securities Commission would do research in this area and, and would you know, think to use this research to inform its policy. So maybe as a starting point, you could kind of just give us a little primer um, on, on the Ontario Securities Commission's investor office uh, and maybe why you guys decided to have a behavioral research team in that investor office?
9: Absolutely. Um, So in the OSC investor office, um, you know, our director, Tyler Fleming, he's really championed sort of approaching investor issues from a multidisciplinary lens. So in addition to our policy work, we have a great education and outreach team, but we're really fortunate to have our uh, investor research and behavioral insights team uh, sort of in-house here. Um, As you know, policymaking is a really complex process. It requires significant time, resources, and expertise. And in the security space, a lot of us um, approach the policy side and look at things from sort of legal or academic or political lenses, which can be a little more theoretical. Um, however, it's really important to look at the data and the science that informs how people actually think and behave in practice. Investor research can really help on the front end, especially identifying areas where policy solutions really can support and benefit retail investors. But behavioral insights are really what add context. And help identify areas where we can effectively implement policies and how we can do that
8: so what you're saying then is the investor office really aims to provide investor perspective i guess into the development of policies rules and operational activities and it seems really like you're using these uh this behavioral science i guess to decode um, and tell you a little bit more about that investor perspective and experience.
9: Absolutely, um, and yeah. So like for a bit about you know behavioral insights, um, You know, policy making tends to assume that people are rational agents. So that means that they have and understand all the available information. They know the probabilities of events and they're able to assess costs and benefits uh, and consistently choose the best option. And while we'd all love to think that that is what we are doing every day, every time we make a decision, the reality is that we don't always have the time to to suss out all those details and to make an informed decision in the moment. So right, well, I,
3: yeah, I, I know that you know, the, you you put together a study last year that is is hugely significant and touches on what I think is one of the most important topics for the industry, and that is how do they increase the take rate to get people to designate a trusted contact person. So. Uh Deb, why don't you lead us through that with Danica, please?
8: Yeah, so From my understanding, the the study that you did really looked at how you could increase or get more people to appoint a trusted contact person. And, you know, to me, it's really a no brainer. I think about it. I think, well, why wouldn't people want to name a trusted contact person? But what you're saying is that there's many reasons why they wouldn't want to possibly. And so maybe you could tell us some of those reasons.
9: Yeah. So we wanted to identify cognitive biases and other processes that prevent investors from making a decision in their best interest. So our primary. goal was obviously to increase uh, uptake of the TCP. So part of that was, you know, first we broke it down into a decision mapping exercise. So we really looked at how people make decisions. In this case, we looked at comprehension. So an investor needs to understand the decision they're being asked to make. Evaluation, they need to evaluate the benefits and potential costs of the decision and action. So they need to actually follow through with their decision. Um, Comprehension challenges, as you know, many of us are aware, they can be mitigated by the use of plain language and good practices uh, in communication, and especially when promoting financial literacy. But biases tend to manifest themselves in the evaluation and action phases.
8: So when when you say biases, just if I could interrupt you for a second so we can kind of plain language, do you mean kind of like a barrier that might prevent somebody from, from appointing their trusted contact
9: person? Exactly. So these are thought processes that we have that we're not always aware of. So for example, there are three key biases that we identified that would identify an investor's willingness to appoint a TCP. The first is an optimism bias. So it's a tendency for people to underestimate the likelihood of negative events. So for example, this might lead investors to underweight the risks associated with cognitive decline or financial exploitation. Another is avoidance of negative emotions. We really don't like thinking about situations that create unpleasant feelings as human beings. We tend to put those thoughts out of our mind as swiftly as possible, and so investors might not uh, consider the importance of appointing a TCP because it requires them to actually imagine those bad things happening to them. And finally, the third is illusory superiority. So, you know, as humans, we kind of tend to think we're all a little above average at least, and we tend to overestimate our qualities in relation to the qualities of other people. So there's an overlap here with optimism bias, but we think our chances of doing better are in even in adverse situations are a lot higher than others around us. So people may think that some investors might benefit from TCPs, but not them. That's not something that they expect to come up.
8: So right. what,
3: what, what did you do uh, and how did you present the the, the test to, to see what works and what doesn't to try to increase the take rate on the trusted contact person?
9: So we tested different ways to counter or mitigate the biases. So we, what we did is we d- designed three different versions of a TCP form and they contained elements from behavioral science and conducted a randomized control trial to determine which of these forms were more effective than the control form based on sort of current practices used in firms. So we studied about 900 Canadian investors over the age of 55. Each participant reviewed one of four forms and then they were asked whether or not they'd be willing to look at a TCP. And and what did you find? So we looked at three specific techniques. Um, So debiasing boosts, they work by providing decision makers with relevant information at the time they're making a decision. So in this case, we use a statistic on the prevalence of fraud. Um, Canadians lose billions of dollars to frauds and scams every year, and older investors are more likely to be the victims of these crimes. Social norms, which really influence our decision making because, you know, as humans, we're social animals, we typically seek to conform with the group. So there we used um, Uh, data from a survey on the level of support for the TCP to inform uh, individuals about the norms of using a TCP. So we mentioned that 90% of Canadians support having a TCP. And finally, we asked everyone to make an active choice. So that forces users to decide to commit to their decision in writing, whereas the status quo will be having no decision. They either had to select yes or no. So, so
8: can I ask you about the priming statements too? Because I think if I had reviewed properly, some of the forms had priming statements and some of them didn't have priming statements. And I'm wondering what role that played.
9: Yeah, so we, we did include priming statements. So priming, um, it, it's designed to set you in a specific state of mind um, so we, we tried those positive and negative priming where you're, we essentially prompt people to look back to a time where they made a good decision and to look back to a time where they made a poor decision and kind of set themselves in that mind state. In this case, we actually found that the priming statements with presence or absence didn't have a positive or negative effect. So it wasn't really an outcome that we highlighted a lot in the study, but it was definitely an important thing to test uh, and to see, see where people were, were influenced or not. Uh, by that type of factor. Right, and and so
8: of the de-biasing boosts and the social norms and the act of choice, were you able to determine whether one of those techniques over another would would, um, promote the uptake rate of the TCP or is it holistically the three used together?
9: So it's holistically the three used together. So the version of the form that included our debiasing statement on the prevalence of fraud, the statement about social norms around appointing TCPs and requiring an active choice. Um, So that caused 23.3% more people to indicate that they would appoint a TCP compared to the control form that represented the status quo. So if this finding occurred in the real world, nearly one out of every five investors may appoint a TCP just because of the behavior elements of
5: this form.
3: So I th- it's worth just pausing for a second and comprehending what that means, because this is one of the most challenging things for firms is trying to, you know, get the top of the jar off and get people to pull the trigger and appoint a TCP. So you're saying that all things being equal, if these methods were employed, that the outcome would be a 23 percent higher
9: take rate. Yep, that that is or that is absolutely you know what what our study suggests. Um, it may vary slightly, especially since the reality is is you may be using slightly different statistics in different jurisdictions. Obviously, uh, what Canadians think and feel about TCPs may be a, a little different than Americans or other jurisdictions. But for the most part, you'd be looking for similar statistics to sort of for, perform those functions. Uh, the,
3: the the only concern I heard voiced by some of my industry friends was they didn't know how comfortable they'd be saying that the average American approves of a trusted contact person. Um, And we talked about this, you and Deborah and I, and you said it doesn't have to be that specific. It just has to be a social prompt of some sort that would serve that kind of uh, to break through that logjam for the for the person appointed.
9: Exactly. Yeah, We're looking to inform investors about what other investors are typically doing in this situation. So that's exactly what a social norm prompt is. is It's saying, hey, this is this is how people are approaching this decision. People like you. And so what
8: I found really interesting from a from a Canadian perspective, um, Danika, and perhaps you can speak to this very quickly. You know, we we are just embarking on, um, you know, the regulatory framework that would that would have registrants ask their clients for the trusted contact person that has just come into effect more recently. And so I was reading the report that um, where this is novel to Canadians, the act of choice is really going to be important in the uptake of the TCP. So maybe you could talk about that quickly.
9: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really, the thing is, is the status quo is we're we're not making those decisions unless we're really asked to decide yes or no. So it's not a case of oh, you can fill out this form if you want to. It's not an optional choice. Although they, of course, always have the option to not uh, not select ATCP under under our jurisdictions at least. But um, yeah, so it's forcing them to actually put that thought process and commit to it and make a decision.
3: Yeah. And what, and what are the major takeaways that that you can describe from the study
9: so like i mentioned so the social norms we've covered that as well as the active choice um, comprehension is of course a key one so we want to describe the role of tcp in plain language remember the end user remember that they're you know they're not necessarily lawyers regulators policy makers and you know they need a more you know plain language approach to explain so that more people can grasp the concept and what it actually will mean for them and finally debiasing so informing investors of the likelihood that they will be a victim of financial exploitation or fraud because while we love to think that this will never happen to us or the people that we love unfortunately uh the reality is is you know it's it's, it's a statistics game and it can absolutely happen to any one of us yeah And, and so you know i know at the beginning of this
8: chat we discussed using behavior insights to inform policy and other initiatives Uh, I know the the Ontario Securities Commission has a lot of other initiatives ongoing right now and, and other resources. Could you tell us about some more of these uh, resources that the the Ontario Securities Commission has, and maybe tell the the listener where they can go to read about some of these behavioral insights and some of these other initiatives to protect older and vulnerable investors?
9: Absolutely. So you're um, there. We're constantly releasing new research and studies on the website osc.ca or osc.gov.gon.ca. Um, one thing that we have developed recently are white label materials. So what these are are free educational resources that that are intended for firms to adapt, brand, and distribute to their representatives. So those include best practices, uh, ready-made form, as well as suggestions informed by behavioral insights and recommendations from subject matter experts designed to sort of mitigate some of the burden of developing some of those materials entirely independently. And what we really wanted to do is put something in the hands of, you know, the representatives or the advisors who would be seeing, uh, you know, clients come into their office with these issues of, you know, potentially diminished mental capacity or with uh, financial exploitation ongoing and have them be able to connect with the uh, material that explains some of these issues and lets firms sort of fill in the blanks with what those next steps should be internally.
3: That's good stuff. Uh, I can't thank you enough for joining. Uh, I think this is fascinating and incredibly useful. Danika, Deborah, thanks so much. Um, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about something soon. Uh, I will say to the audience that um, there's a lot of reference throughout this program to different websites and things like that. It is our plan to try to collapse it into a repository, uh, either on NASA's website or a follow-up email that we intend to send to you. Thank you very much. Just terrific stuff. Thank Um, you. So, on, on behalf of President Lubin, on behalf of. The chair of our committee, Kristen Standifer, uh, I'd really like to say a big word of thanks to everybody that tuned in. I hope you found the content to be useful. Um, and uh, just so you know, we are planning already our next episode, we're going to be handing the mic uh, to the industry um, and, and have the financial services business Uh, tell the audience what matters to them, what they're finding in the field, what workarounds they have. Uh, And we're going to have none other than the irrepressible godfather of seniors, Wells Fargo's Ron Long. Uh, We're going to have Aaron Linehan, the newly minted uh, CCO at Ray J, uh, and SIFMA's senior subject matter, expert, Marin Gibson, among others. So we're really looking forward to that. I'd like to say another word of thanks, if I may, uh, to the folks at NASA Corporate, uh, our producers who have just done a fantastic job uh, helping us out with the broadcast. Uh, I wish you well. I hope you have a good afternoon. On behalf of everyone at NASA, take care and goodbye.
0: Thanks for listening to NASA Talks with your host and producer, Karen Grahalis. This webcast episode was recorded in early 2022. If you enjoyed this episode, please share this podcast with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch the latest from NASA, you can follow us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at NASA.